Hello, I'm Father Mitch Paqua, and welcome to EWTN Live. We're bringing you guests from around the world. Tonight, we are going to learn about the way a late 8th century European monk used deer and wild boar to lead a Catholic educational and cultural reform in Europe. And then we'll find out about a group of Catholic intellectuals right here in the United States in Oklahoma who are laying the groundwork for a similar Catholic Renaissance. But first, we want to talk real briefly with EWTN digital media specialist Ryan Penny about EWTN's continued efforts to share the gospel across different media platforms. Ryan, what are you up to? Father, I'm here tonight to tell our audience about an exciting, brand new addition to EWTN's YouTube channel. Yes. Uh, before I do that, I wanted to give a, a bit of a backstory on where this new initiative came from. Mm -hmm. So, as many of our audience may know, that the TikTok app has really revolutionized the way that the world consumes media, especially video. Mm -hmm. And it's become so popular that it outranked uh, Google last year mm -hmm. as the most visited web domain in the world. Mm -hmm. And so all the other big social media platforms have wanted to make their own version of TikTok videos. And they're basically short, under 60 second vertical videos that uh, fill up your whole uh, phone screen. And uh, it, so Instagram made their reels back in 2020 and YouTube made their shorts last year. And it took their daily view count from three and a half billion to 15 billion in just a few months. Okay. And so uh, what's very clear though, is one of the types of video that's been the most popular is motivational and inspirational videos. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them take old videos uh, from influencers uh, many, many years ago and kind of remixing them, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, with um, music and video uh, to help the viewer to connect with the message better. And so we were sort of looking at this uh, uh, trend and thinking, well, if there's a clearly a demand for the wisdom of uh, sages for a new generation, um, there's a demand for this, and that's a demand that EWTN can certainly meet with the likes of Mother Angelica and Fulton Sheen and uh, Father Groeschel and uh, Dr. David Anders and Father Spitzer and uh, maybe some other Jesuits. And so, <laughs> so, but what all of them have in common is that they are teaching people not just earthly wisdom, but they point to the divine wisdom himself. Mm -hmm. And so what these shorts have been, so we've made our own shorts on our YouTube uh, uh, channel with Mother Angelica and uh, Fulton Sheen, and they've been very well received so far. Let's take a quick look at one. We have one about Easter. This is our week of hope. The resurrection is our hope. He kept his promise. He said, the Son of Man would suffer, be crucified, scourged, and on the third day, he would rise again. And he did. He did. And so you and I, with all our problems, the things we don't understand, the misunderstandings in our life, the heartaches, the physical pain, mental pain, spiritual pain, everything that the Lord suffered, he said to you, look, this is the result. It is all worth it. You say, Lord, let me never forget that my whole life, even my faults and my sins, will be used by you for my good somehow. And that one day all of these shackles of weakness will fall off of me like the scale from a fish. And I too shall rise. Oh, good one. Mm. And you do a lot of the designing of most of these, as I understand. So these can be checked out on our on EWTN's main YouTube uh, channel page. Yeah, if, so it's youtube.com youtube.com slash EWTN. If they just go to the search bar and uh, type in EWTN, they'll find it if they hit the red icon. That's our page and they scroll down. It's like in the middle of the page. There's what's called the shorts shelf. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. And we have about uh, 10 of them so far, and our audience can expect us to have a new one about every week. Okay. <laughs> <coughs> Gets choked up all <laughs> Get the time. Up about it. It's terrible. <laughs> all right, Ryan. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. We're going to be back in a couple of minutes with tonight's guest, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, now, first of all, I just want to mention that today would have been Mother Angelica's 99th birthday. Now, of course, she passed away six years ago on Easter Sunday of that year, 2016. But it's really great for us to remember her uh, because if it wasn't for the Lord using her, I don't think this network would exist. Um, she, she was great to know. She was a good friend of mine, and we all miss her. And I guess we just have to try to be good so that someday we'll get to go to heaven and meet her again. But I want to wish her a happy birthday and thank all of you for the support that you give to make her dream not only possible, but even far beyond what she had envisioned. It's been amazing to see. But as Mother would have done, were she, were she still here, we have a guest tonight. And he, along with his various colleagues, are working to cultivate a resurgence of a deep Catholic faith and a rich Catholic culture in the Diocese of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is, by the way, if you've never been there, that's such a beautiful part of Oklahoma. Now, of course, this involves feasting on the splendor of truth and the sense of wonder that comes from the primary sources of the literary Christian West. They cultivate an authentic community of friendship, and they integrate the truths of our Catholic faith. These truths have a direct impact on all aspects of life, the personal, social, the political, moral, and the religious elements of life. Here to tell us more, please welcome the president of the Alquin Institute for Catholic Culture, Dr. Richard Maloche. Dr. Maloche, welcome. Wow, Good to have you it, with us. It is a pleasure. And, Good. And to be here on the uh, anniversary of the birthday of Mother. This is, yeah, it's pretty This cool. is quite fitting. I know. It's it's, uh, it really is something that was, it's a great thing for us to remember that. And, you know, the kind of thing that you're doing is exactly what she would like to have highlighted. That's the kind of thing she wants people to know about. But let's get to understanding what you're doing. First of all, this is the Alquin Institute. Who was Alquin? Yeah, he is a very, or relatively obscure character in the history of the church. Yeah. Not too many people know about him. Yeah. Um, so it may be a bit odd that we would choose him as our patron, as a namesake for the Institute. Um, but is he a saint? He's, well, he's, there's some questions in regards to that. Popularly, he's known as a blessed. Okay. Um, uh, within the, the larger Catholic intellectual tradition. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, he is a very essential individual. Absolutely. Um, and it's a shame, really, that he's not better well known. And so a lot of what we're doing at the, at the Institute is trying to make his cause known and the importance of him historically um, within the, the Catholic world. Mm -hmm. So first of all, when did Alcuin live and where did he come from? Sure. 
So Elquin uh, was born somewhere around 735. Mm -hmm. um, he was born in a kind of remote area of northern England. Um, Northumbria was the region where he was, he came from. Um, he, there's some questions in regards to, you know, his status as a cleric. Um, some point to that perhaps he was a deacon, others perhaps he received uh, the fullness of orders mm -hmm. and became a priest. Nonetheless, he, he was important because in the year 800, Charlemagne... Who um, was the Holy Roman Emperor. Correct. Appointed to be the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and this is after centuries of cultural, political, social chaos, the so-called Dark Ages. The Pope uh, um, crowned, if you will, Charlemagne. And Charlemagne realized at that point that he needed help in order to bring the, uh, you know, the, the society, the culture out of this, this political and cultural misery. And so he gathered, if you will, scholars from around the known world, uh, the known empire, and he singled out Elquin specifically to begin the educational and cultural reforms that were so necessary. Yeah. And so he pointed Elkman to do this. Now, surprisingly, as the new czar, if you will, of, of culture and education, his first act was to order, and you would appreciate this, Father, to order that the, the forests of Europe be populated with boar and deer. Everybody scratch our heads like, how, what does this have to do at all with kind of a cultural or educational And by boar, you mean wild pigs, Correct. not Dull people or boring people. <laughs> That's right. This is wild pigs. Wild pigs uh, and deer. I mean, he was a very practical thinker. And so he realized if we need educational reform, we need the tools of education. And the, the hair of the boar would become the, the instruments of writing. The brushes would be used with the boar hair. And the skin of the deer, the vellum, would be the, the parchment, the paper in which to, to write. And so the, practically, he was, he was a very concrete thinker. And one of the things uh, in that regard is that, you know, paper was no longer available from Egypt. Mm. Uh, you know, papyrus, what we call it, from which we get the word paper, uh, was no longer being exported to Europe. Mm -hmm. So vellum, uh, the, the skins of, of animals. Yeah, this was the medium mm -hmm. that was absolutely necessary for, for the books that yep. were being copied. Um, so that was his first thing to do. And I think... Again, very practical. Uh, we need these tools of learning, but also I think there was a deeper reason why he, he ordered basically the entire population to go into the fields, to go into the forests. There's something about nature which is healing, which is medicinal, and this is a, a fractured world. And so he realized that individuals need to come in contact with reality, and that contact with reality heals. Nature has this tendency to heal almost naturally. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know this to be the case. If you have a wound, what do you do? You kind of expose it to the air in order to heal. And so Elkwin, I think, very prudently, very wisely decided we need to heal this community, this, 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 these, these folks from around the diocese. They need to become in contact with reality. Mm -hmm. So both very practical, but also pedagogically you realized we need, we need some healing. So that was his first thing to do. His second step in this cultural um, uh, model of, of resurgence was to, was to have all the texts that had survived, um, the kind of years of, of misery, the, the burning of texts uh, that were found in the monasteries when the barbarian horrors kind of swept through Europe. They destroyed all things that were good, true, and beautiful, including these ancient libraries. But there were some monasteries which preserved these texts, and Elkin realized we need to safeguard these. And so he ordered all these ancient texts to be copied, letter by letter, word by word. And so folks understand, one of the great things that happened when Ireland was converted, that there was no martyrdom, that they didn't have a per major persecution. And so many of the Irish converts went to convents and monasteries, and they had begun copying. And then they brought other copies to Europe. The reason was the Irish were so fierce as fighters, the barbarians didn't even want to mess with them. <laughs> yes, there's a reason Just why they're called point. the fighting Irish. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's great. And also, you know, this, this idea that these texts need to be copied and, and preserved 
was, was essential. And, and the fact that we have these ancient texts today, that we're able to recourse to Homer and these other great texts is really the, the consequence of Elquin and mm -hmm. the desire to preserve this, these ancient texts. Um, otherwise, they would have been lost to history. Another key thing that he did, and this, this is no small issue, he also helped devise a way of writing letters. Correct. Because people had their own styles of writing the letters, mm -hmm. and those are very difficult to read, whatever is left of them, very hard to read. He standardized the letters so that people can yeah. read texts the very fact much that we can, better. That we can text today is a direct result of the efforts yes. of Elkwin. Exactly, yes. and that they're intelligible. So that's the second thing he did. And the third thing he did, he said, let's gather all these educators and bring them together, form these communities of, of scholarship, these communities of learning, and learn from one another. So mm -hmm. there's really kind of a threefold effort that he developed. Return to kind of nature, immediate contact with reality, immediate contact with ancient texts through the, through the copying of these texts, and thirdly, let's bring together all the, the educators, the scholars together in these communities of learning. And as a result of his efforts, what you saw was the resurgence of really a Catholic culture that yeah. the world has never seen since. It was just, it's known as the Carolingian Renaissance. It was just this unprecedented moment of human flourishing. And by Carolingian, this refers to Charlemagne. Correct, yeah, and his efforts. Yeah, what's, what's also important too, Charlemagne wanted universal literacy. He wanted everybody to learn, and he started it himself. He learned how to read and write, not well, but he learned some. That's right, and his teacher was, was Alcuin of York. Yes. So, yes. And so what we're trying to do here in the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma is we figured if that worked on the large scale, right, if, if Catholic culture really developed and flourished as a result of Alcuin's efforts, perhaps it would be prudent to attempt something similar in our diocese. Yes. Let's look at these three principles and try to enculturate these three principles here and now with the hope of establishing a new Christendom in, in our diocese. Now, you bring these same three principles as the core principles of your institute, correct? Correct, yeah, we call them real living, real friendship, real learning. Yep. Yeah, so that these, and, and with the idea of not a pretend reality, but reality as it actually is. Correct. This is. Yeah, so we have, we have a number of events that we do, but they always try to incorporate these three foundational principles. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we'll gather um, Catholic school personnel. We'll gather catechists from parishes together. Um, and we will gather as friends in a communal setting. Often we meet in places of authentic leisure. So we're not meeting in classrooms per se, but rather we're meeting in, in pubs, we're meeting in cafes, we're meeting in, in homes around hearths, you know, where people normally meet mm -hmm. and where people usually have really meaningful conversations. Um, and then we have recourse to real food often, as friends tend to do, right? Mm -hmm. This is kind of the, the natural medium of conversation. So we, we always have kind of locally sourced food. Um, much of the food is from my own farm, you know, of my cured meat that you, I make. You yourself uh, have a farm that's, you know, not a pretend farm. This is a working farm, correct? It is, yes. Well, working is a strong word. <laughs> we try to make it work. Uh, but yes, yeah, we, we, we grow most of our own um, well, meat products mm -hmm. um, from the farm and uh, have a somewhat of a thriving garden if the bugs don't get it. But. And I know Oklahoma well enough that there are plenty of wild pigs and deer out there as well, so you're just right there with Alquin. That's right. We're trying to do something very similar. And so we'll, we'll come together and we have good drink, good food, and then we have recourse to primary sources, just like Alquin did. So mm -hmm. instead of reading textbooks, Yes. Or, or watching uh, videos, you know, they're the place for those. 
but authentic learning always takes place within the context of friendship. Mm -hmm. And so we have recourse to primary text. You know, instead of reading what someone said about Augustine, we actually read Augustine. We actually read Aquinas. We actually read Newman. And in that way, this is one of the reasons why we call our faculty tutors and not faculty or professors or teachers. Because as a tutor, we see ourselves as being taught as well, mm -hmm. right? The true master is Augustine. The mm -hmm. true master is Aquinas. And they're teaching us. Now we're just fellow, t fellow pilgrims, if you will, on this intellectual um, encounter with truth. No, A, I can't agree strong, more strongly enough with you that the need to get to actual texts is key because there are people out there who lie, flat out lie mm -hmm. about the text. I remember years ago there was a, uh, one lady who was claiming that St. Thomas taught that women are just defective men. And they were saying this. And people said, well, we've got to get rid of Thomas Aquinas. What they didn't say I don't know if they were too stupid or if they were lying. Mm -hmm. Those are the alternatives. But Thomas said that this was the opinion of a guy and he then refuted it. That's right. And if you don't read the text, you don't know. Yeah, he wrote that in there as something for him to refute, mm -hmm. not to agree with. But again, either fools or liars That's are right. out there, so we have to know the actual text. Mm -hmm. And there's but, a certain beauty to those actual texts. Yes. I mean, there's a reason why they're great and exactly. good. Exactly. Because they're able to express the truths of our Catholic faith in a way which is so profound and so meaningful that it can't help but stir the heart. Yeah. And then, of course, the critique as well, you know, the average layperson really can't understand Aquinas. They really can't stand Augustine, which is nonsense. They can. They can. And they enjoy it. They love it. Um, we just need to be able to present it to them in a way which is palatable. Now, one of the things about the Institute is that you have very strong support from your bishop, who is Bishop Condola, correct? Correct, yes. Um, and I actually remember him, met him when uh, I was giving some talks at Texas A&M. Mm -hmm. where he used to be one of the chaplains and did fantastic work there. I'd like to show a clip about Bishop Condola's support for this institute. So let's take a look at that. People here in Oklahoma have a desire not simply to live, but to live well and to live with Christ. And as disciples of Jesus Christ, it's our absolute duty to evangelize the culture in which we live, a culture that is drifting further and further away from the Christian gospel. I wanted to establish an institute that would help us to form friends of Jesus Christ, friends with one another, people who because of their deep formation in the faith and their friendship with each other can evangelize the culture. On October 7th, 2018, the feast day of Our Lady of the Holy Rosary, Bishop Condola formally launched the Alquin Institute for Catholic Culture to oversee that priority and help serve the Catholic leaders in Eastern Oklahoma. The faculty of the Alquin Institute call themselves tutors from the Latin tutari, meaning to preserve or to keep watch over. Their active tutory includes, but is in no means limited to, lecturing, moderating, jawing, pointing out the obvious, pondering, studying, singing, praying, castigating, and feasting. <laughs> feasting, eh? Very important <laughs> element. I think some of that feasting used to go on in Charlemagne's court. That's true, yes. Uh, he was very famous for loving meat. He mm -hmm. loved roast meat. Yes. Um, but it wasn't too good. He ate too much, but you got to keep balance. <laughs> Eat your vegetables too. Well, it's an important element. You know, we are not angels. No. Right. And so much of the work that we're trying to do on that very point is we're trying to convince a culture that the life of the mind, yeah. right, that intellectual effort, that study, that learning is pleasurable. Yeah. 
Like we've kind of lost that as a culture. Mm. You know, and you know, there's this wonderful text by Dickens called Hard Times. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's this scene in which there's a professor and it's kind of critiquing uh, the modern mode of education. And there's a professor there, so he's a wonderful uh, name of this character. He's named Professor, professor Gradgrind. And he's there, he's the head of class, and of course all the students are in a nice lined up role. They're sitting politely and quietly, and he's lecturing them, lecturing them and just drilling in facts and data. And it's very kind of inhumane. It's not the way we're meant to learn. No. And it's no. not pleasurable. And no. so we're trying to convince people that, you know, contrary to that mode of education, there's a way in which you can actually pursue academic studies, which is a joy. Yes. There's a merriment to it. It's one of the higher goods in life. And so we're trying to wed feasting with the feasting of the mind, very intentionally. This is where professors also have to have a sense of life and why they're professors. You know, why, did, why are you into this? And it's easy to slip off the rails into thinking that, I'm here to appease my colleagues mm -hmm. so I can get tenure and I can get published and recognition and promotion, which are fine in themselves. But if you focus on that, instead of the joy of communicating learning, mm -hmm. or if you think that I have to make something innovative just to show creativity instead of being faithful to what we know and doing that creatively, mm -hmm. you can mess yourself up. Yeah. In, in many ways, the, the origin of the Institute has as its, well, there's kind of three causes, if you will, of how the Institute actually came to be. So one of them was my disenchantment with higher education. You know, I was teaching at St. Greg's, a wonderful uh, Catholic university in, in Oklahoma for years. But I just became, I became more and more convinced that the modern educational model is not effective. Mm -hmm. right? Me just pontificating at the head of class, although you had some very good students who were learning the material, there was no deeper conversion in their lives. Yes. And so I became kind of disenchanted with this and you know, changing my model of education, inviting my classes to my home and having them experience what an integrated family Catholic life looks like, mm -hmm. having them experiencing it poetically, experientially. Um, and then I began to see really wonderful effects in the classroom and in my students. Mm -hmm. And so there was this kind of movement in myself, my own pedagogy, my own uh, way of teaching. And at the same time, you had Bishop Condola, who was over in the Diocese of Tulsa. He began a strategic plan and came out with a pastoral letter in 2018. And in that pastoral letter, he called for the ongoing formation of Catholic leaders, catechists, Catholic school personnel, deacons, priests, you know, all the frontline workers that are involved in the efforts of Holy Mother Church to evangelize the nations. He mm -hmm. said, we need to invest in them. Mm -hmm. So you had these two things happening, my disenchantment with the model of modern Catholic higher education. You have Bishop's pastoral letter. And then the final kicker was the closure of St. Gregory's University. Um, and that really kind of, those three things converged. And as a result, you had the, the birth of the Institute. So it's wonderful to see how Providence kind of is yeah. working behind the scenes and all these things. I, I don't know if you have heard much about this, but I used to teach in Tulsa. The University of Dallas, where I had been a professor, had an extension program mm -hmm. there to do this as well. But, you know, that, that program ended. Um, and so um, it's nice to hear that this is revitalizing itself in this other yeah, in this other way. I think it, it's an important thing. And I think part of this is when I was in seminary back in, you know, I started seminary in 63. The council was still going on mm -hmm. when I started seminary. And by the late 60s, 
a certain anti-intellectualism began to seep into seminary. We don't need to know all these things. We just need to be there for the people and show them that we care and that we love them. And this developed in the seven, 70s, as I, I could see this happening around me, that people are joining these other churches because they find community. We just have to build community rather than also answer their needs of the mind, their intellectual needs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of clergy couldn't answer why Catholicism was more true. Mm -hmm. And what you all are doing is revitalizing that community aspect integrated with the intellectual. They go together. That's right. It's not one or the other. That's exactly right. There's. There's this, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I mean, our modern culture is really defined by this ever-increasing gap between the truths of the gospel and how we live, right? It's, it's secularism, yep. basically. And so what the Institute is trying to do is try to, to, to bridge that gap mm -hmm. between, you know, what the, the Catholic Church teaches and then how we live. Right. And not have that divorced anymore. Really yes. integrate these two in very concrete, practical ways. And a part of that is, you know, falling in love with the truths of the Catholic faith, not just emotionally, which I think is first, the, kind of the initial um, honeymoon phase, if you will, of conversion to the truths of the Catholic faith, which is good and proper and fitting. But at some point you need to go deeper, right? You have to actually know what the church teaches. And yes. then the more you know, the deeper your love. Yeah, yeah. That I'd like, we need to take a break, break right now. Uh, when we come back, one of the things I'd like us to address is that right now parents are in a conflict with teachers, the teachers union and school boards. School boards are calling some parents terrorist groups. Mm. And this fight back and forth is going on about who teaches morals to our small children and these questions. And I'd like us to take a look at some of that. So we'll come back in just a couple minutes uh, as we continue talking about the importance of the Alcuin Institute for Catholic Culture. And if you want to find out more about it, you can also go to alquininstitute.org, alquininstitute.org. Well, stay with us. We'll be right back and talk more about it. We are speaking about the Alquin Institute for Catholic Culture, which is located in and near uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And something that y'all should know about is that they have an annual Faith and Culture Conference, Art and Revelation. This will be on Saturday, May 21st. And it'll be at the Parish of Christ the King in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you want to find out more information about that, you can go to alquininstitute.org. Now, Alquin is spelled A-L-C-U-I-N, Alquin, <laughs> but we say it Alquin. So alquininstitute.org. And is that any fun? That uh, conference? Well, it's going to be wonderful. Yeah. It's going to be a blast. Um, we have some really good speakers coming in. It's just a day conference. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a huge time commitment. Yeah. But it's going to be really looking at art and how uh, art can be utilized to express the truths of the Catholic faith in very meaningful, very practical ways. Yep. And 
you know, given that theme, it's no accident that a couple summers ago in 2020, many Catholic churches had their art desecrated. There were many statues that were des broken, mm -hmm. paint was poured upon them, a couple churches were set on fire. It, those kind of attacks on art were done at various times. The Protestant Reformation did this, and it points to how important art is. That you, you have to destroy it means that you're scared of it. Mm -hmm. And so that would be a good good yeah. conference. And of course, you know, much of the of the work of the Alcuin Institute is ordered to not only kind of perfecting the intellect, this is an important element, but even prior to that, you know, we're trying to form a holistic people, holistic culture, and a part of that is the formation of the imagination, mm -hmm. uh, which is really very, very important, essential. Yes. And so a part of that, of course, is building up the aesthetic sense, being able to perceive and understand beauty. Well, again, contrast that with our modern society where people are running to uh, pornography and the internet is loaded with mm -hmm. pornography as opposed to that which is beautiful art. People don't look to pornography for beauty. Mm -hmm. They look for it for self-gratification. But real art is something that lifts the person up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I think that's beautifully said. Yeah, there's a transcendent nature to art. And I think what has happened in modernity specifically and especially, I mean, if you're even looking at the development of, of a Catholic culture, right, and the elements of culture, everything needs to, just as in nature, combine function and form, right? These things go together in nature. A flower has a certain form, and it's beautiful to behold. Mm -hmm. But that beauty of a flower is functional, right? It's, it is, it's designed the way it is in order to attract insects, to it, and this is why it smells beautiful, this is why it's all, it's so bright and, and colorful. So in nature, function and form are together. And what we have to do when we're developing culture, whether that's in our domestic settings, in our classrooms, in our parishes, in our communities, um, in our own wardrobes, right? We need to unite these two together. And in modernity, I think you're absolutely right, we've separated form and function. Mm -hmm. And so you can have something that is, you know, functional, and we use, without form, without beauty, and we call that something that's ugly, right? When something is, is, is utilitarian, but has no beauty to it. And the opposite is extreme as well. When you have, when you have functionality, right? Um, or, or formality without, without function. And then it just becomes gaudy. And I think this is really the mockery of the pornography industry. Yeah. Right? It's that yeah. disassociation of function and form mm -hmm. within the human person. Mm -hmm. And you know, you see also. I one of one of the things I am still grateful for is that at the high school seminary I attended in the early '60s, we had four years of music training and appreciation. They taught us how to read uh, sta you know, standard music notation mm -hmm. as well as Gregorian chant. They taught us the classic composers. Every semester was a different composer. And uh, you know, all of this enriched us as, as young men and prepared us to understand truly beautiful music. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't like every part of classical music, um, but you still learned what you did like and got an idea why it was so beautiful. That's important for us to have beautiful music rather than angry noise. That's right. On that point, I, there's a wonderful text, um, which I highly recommend to everyone, by Joseph Pieper. Leisure as yes. the basis of yes, culture. Yes, yes, because yes, in order yes. to appreciate the beautiful, 
where, you, where you're able to notice the functionality and the formality of a thing, um, how they come together in the sublime way. You need leisure. You need to be able to pause and gaze at a thing in order to really appreciate it, to understand how is this thing, how is, how is form and function united in this particular thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes a degree of contemplative leisure. And we just don't appreciate that, don't value that. But obviously in your formation, they encouraged it. Absolutely. Which is absolutely essential. Absolutely. There's this wonderful letter that um, Elkwin wrote to Charlemagne on this very point. So Charlemagne, apparently, from the context of this ancient letter that we have, was uh, busy in warfare. He was tracking down some Franks that were rebellious, and he's, he slaughters all these, these, these Frankish um, rebellious group um, on, this, on the banks of this river. And his men are coming back, and they're kind of in this feverish pitch of excitement because they're just engaged in this brutal attack on these, on these fellowship citizens, basically. And you could tell that Charlemagne was requesting Elquin to write him some music. He says, please write me some music, and Charlemagne does so in, in, this, respo- in this correspondence that we have between the two, uh, because ultimately he knew that music has a way in which it, it soothes the soul, it calms the individual. And uh, so this is a beautiful example of the importance of music, the importance of beauty, and the cultivation of virtue. In fact, in the early education program, music was a key component Mm -hmm. because music also has a mathematical beauty to it. You have to have a certain time. So, well, this four, four time, three, four time, two, four time, all that. And all of the notes have to add up in each measure. And this uh, taught mathematics and music. They went together and astronomy. That was usually taught along with music uh, because science and the beauty of music had this coordination in mm-hmm. the, their mind. And we need to have those brought back together. That's right. They're essential. And we see this historically within the life of the church. Again, there's this wonderful essay by uh, Cardinal Newman called The Mission of St. Benedict. And he takes a sweeping, yet sweeping survey of the kind of educational history of the Catholic Church, and he, and he appoints three different ages, the Benedictine, the Dominican, and then the Ignatian periods. And basically he's saying, you know, these three are progressive. You need to have first the Benedictine, which is kind of this poetic experience of reality, which allows for the intellectual Dominicans to come along, which finally allows for the Ignatian activeness, the activity of the Ignatian to go and convert the entire world. But as a whole, the church kind of progressed through these stages, the poetic, the intellectual, and then the final, the, the actual. Mm-hmm. And I think what Newman is suggesting, at least this is how I interpret him, is that this has to happen not only within the, the life of the church as a whole, but also in the life of each individual soul. Right? We need the poetic experience of music, of poetry, before we can have a really robust intellectual life, before we can engage in apostolic activity. Mm-hmm. But we want to, as modern, just jump to the activity without doing the intellectual work, which I'll, without proceeding with the poetic uh, experience of reality first. We're born into this period of activity, but if you don't have poetry, and intellectual development, you're running on fumes and you need to have the fresh fuel mm-hmm. of beautiful poetry and music and art as well as the great intellectual development. Now that gets to something I mentioned before the break. We have a, 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 a battles going on around the United States I don't know how it is in other countries. I don't hear as much. Mm-hmm. But in this country, there are battles about teaching uh, children morals, especially sexual morality, before uh, they, they're very old, like preschool and first grade, and that trying to take that from the parents to the schools. Mm-hmm. Um, th- what 
what would the Alcuin Institute offer parents in that area? I think in general, you know, as Catholics, we need to begin to think with the mind of Holy Mother Church. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, that in that in order to do that, you know, I need to turn to the past. You need to understand that great history of ours to begin to think with the mind of the church. And the church has been very clear that the primary educators of children are parents. Mm -hmm. Period. Right. They are the educators. Yes. Um, now, there are certain circumstances in which that education is then um, relinquished to a certain degree to an outside extrinsic agent, i.e. a school system or a teacher, mm -hmm. but the state right, is not the teacher of your child. Right. You are, or yes. the parent is, uh, the primary educators of children. In, one, in this realm, something that I've been doing a little bit of research on and one of the things that I find that may be connected to this crisis is only 5% of boys, a little bit higher percentage of girls, only about 5% of boys learn about the role of sexuality and human life from their fathers. Mm. And of that 5%, only about 2% get a complete talk from their father. The other 3% or so, their father gives them a book to read and does not teach them. Yeah, that's a shame. It's worse than a shame because they don't communicate the privilege and dignity of becoming a father and what that entails on the natural realm. Mm -hmm. And if the boys don't learn from their fathers their own dignity as men and the dignity of women and the respect they have to have for themselves and for, for women and learn it from a man who has shown that respect to his wife and his children, they are going to make up mm. what they think should be because they don't know from someone who has the experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm and not. That's not right. You are not the first, nor am I, to really kind of sound the alarm and the loss of authentic masculinity and what this looks like, um, and the responsibilities of that of that fatherhood and that parenting right as a as a man, and uh, his charge was making sure that his children are formed correctly yes. in the mind of the church. Yeah, we we relinquish that responsibility. And we need to reclaim it. It yeah. is it is a crisis, and it's it falls squarely on the shoulders of men. We if have failed. If you don't as like the way the government runs the railroad, what makes you think they can do much better with teaching your kids, mm -hmm. especially something that important? And there's another problem. We have, oh, well, we have a caller. I want to make sure we get to this. Karen, are you there? Yes. I Hi. Where are you calling from? Um, I'm calling from Minnesota. Oh, great. Thank you. And what is your question or comment? Um, I'm really fascinated with uh, Dr. Malosha's program. I was wondering if he could uh, give me some uh, feedback on how to start an LQ and Institute within my own parish community. Oh, good idea. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful question. We've actually been solicited by other dioceses at this point. You know, looking at our program, our institute, mm -hmm. what we have done, what we are doing. And so we, we do provide some kind of consultation to other dioceses. So I would recommend, you know, reaching out to your local parish priest, um, reaching out to your, to your local ordinary, your bishop. Um, in many ways, we're, listen, we're living in really interesting times in regards to higher education in general. Mm -hmm. Namely, we, we're seeing the the end, if you will, I think, of the kind of the formal Catholic higher education. You see these, the, the, these smaller Catholic institutions now are, are kind of closing their doors. St. Greg's is an, another example, but there are multiple, multiple examples. Um, it's just becoming very difficult in our secular age to teach the truths of the Catholic faith in a truly uh, orthodox, integrated way without the state getting involved. Mm -hmm. so it becomes very, very difficult. And so you see the rise of these smaller diocesan local institutions providing this alternative 
formation. So these are kind of very interesting times that we're living in. I think it's a very good movement at large. Um, but again, I would just talk to your local priest. Um, we have wonderful resources on our on our website as well that can kind of help. AlquinInstitute.org. Correct. Right. Okay. All right, good. Can we have time for one more caller? Of course. Uh, Mary Ann. Hi, Father. Hi, Mary. where are you calling from? Ohio. Wonderful. And your question? I'm a volunteer instructor of catechism to third graders. Uh, ten children, seven of which are boys. I'd like to understand what your guest would suggest in terms of um, of... Um, I can't hear you. I hear you see, talking on the phone. But what he would suggest is applying his principles to children of that age. Okay. So we have just about a minute or so. How can she teach these small children in her catechism class? What would be some good materials to give them? There's, I would recommend looking into Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. Mm -hmm. It's a very common program, and I think more and more parishes are adopting the program. It's a very good program. It really emphasizes this quote-unquote poetic mode of learning, mm -hmm. so learning first through the senses. The whole notion is that if we want Christ to reside in our intellects and our wills, He must first reside in our senses, mm -hmm. in our imaginations. Mm -hmm. Yes. So let's get these children involved with actually experiencing the beauty, the goodness, the the, the wonder of, of reality. And you know, I know parents, uh, some of my parishioners are using this catechesis of the Good Shepherd. It is very, very solid. And, and does uh, something else too, I don't know their reading ability, but I think they can handle this. I used to use the Chronicles of Narnia with my high school students. They would read a couple of those and then I would have them read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity mm. so that their imagination first was prepared for that. Wonderful. But we are out of time. I'm sorry, I wish we had more. It was a lot of fun. Um, again, it's alquininstitute.org. If you want to find out more, I want to thank you for being with us. And may Almighty God bless you all and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we can discuss the Alcuin Institute and do all the other programs that we do only because the network is brought to you by you. That's how Mother was inspired by our Lord to have this network work. So. Please keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll pay all of our bills too. Thank you. God bless.